Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this edition of Creating the Future. Now, I have to be honest with you, I have been looking forward to this for a while because I love history. I'm a history buff like many of you are. I love to hear the stories of history. And today, this Thanksgiving week, we have a very special episode with you where we get to hear the story of the real first Thanksgiving. Uh, we have Dr. Tracy McKenzie with us, and uh, he is a historian. He's worked for the last 10 years at Wheaton College. Uh, for 22 years before that, he was at the University of Washington. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Tennessee and a master's degree in history and a PhD in history uh, from Vanderbilt University. And he wrote a book not too long ago called The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. And you are going to love this today as we hear some inspirational stories, some just fun facts about history, messing our minds up about modern day Thanksgiving, and uh, you're going to have a blast. One of my big takeaways is as you hear how the original pilgrims in 1621 would have never referred to the celebration that they had as a Thanksgiving. They wouldn't have called it Thanksgiving. They would have called it something else. They would have called it a party or something. They would have never called it a Thanksgiving. But the celebration they had two years later in 1623, they would have referred to that as a Thanksgiving. Very interesting stuff. You are going to love this little brief history lesson. And I hope it makes your Thanksgiving even better than it normally would be. We're going to burst some bubbles of what we think about Thanksgiving a little bit, but I think it's going to make it come to life in a unique and special way. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. McKenzie. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Creating the Future and this very special Thanksgiving conversation today that I get to have with Dr. Tracy McKenzie uh, from Wheaton College. And uh, welcome to the show, Dr. McKenzie. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I can't lie. I have been anticipating this show because I am a history buff, by no means an expert, but I just love hearing the stories. I think a lot of men are kind of wired that way. I know a lot of people listening are wired that way, and we just love to hear uh, all of the incredible stories from history and uh, heroics and, uh, and, and uh, such. All right, so let's, let's jump into this conversation about Thanksgiving. So you're kind of an expert on Thanksgiving, and uh, so I want to I start here because uh, uh, reading the intro to your book, uh, it sounds like the first Thanksgiving was not in 1621. It sounds like there were some other Thanksgivings even before that. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, we remember this event that um, occurs in the fall of 1621. We call it the first Thanksgiving, or we have at least for a couple of centuries. Mm -hmm. There's actually all kinds of evidence that there were gatherings uh, long before that in different scattered areas around the sort of the eastern half of, of North America. Uh, if you ask a Texan, he'll tell you that there were uh, celebrations uh, maybe 30, 40 years before uh, the Pilgrims. Florida claims an early uh, celebration near Jacksonville. State of Maine claims an early uh, celebration. So uh, I, we always have to think of that title as a little bit figurative. It's not literally right. uh, the, the case. Uh, but it is one that we remember in part because of the records that survive and how that began to be very important in the way we think of our uh, early history. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, when you're dealing with uh, Christian people, then they should be full of Thanksgiving and gratitude anyway. So certainly there were many other Thanksgivings before the Thanksgiving, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, that we refer to that, that I guess really kind of became the foundation to the holiday that we celebrate this week. Uh, So let's just jump into, tell us the story of the first Thanksgiving, these pilgrims, uh, you know, coming over to the new world, you know, in, in your vantage point, tell us, tell us that story. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the <clears throat> contours of that story are probably pretty familiar to us. We remember that there was this group of uh, <clears throat> pretty uh, humble men and women, uh, not particularly wealthy or influential, uh, who migrate to um, present-day Massachusetts in 1620. They mm-hmm. actually don't come from in- England directly. Sometimes we forget that detail. Okay. Uh, many of them had migrated from England to Holland okay. uh, around 1607 or so. Uh, and so many of the passengers, the Mayflower, had actually been in a Dutch city called Leiden uh, for more than a decade. Uh, and so they're coming to North America from Holland, arriving in um, November of uh, 1620, so almost okay. exactly four centuries ago. Okay. okay. They're going to uh, sort of explore the coast for a period of several weeks, looking for a, a good settling place. And they finally... Uh, determined that this area around present-day Plymouth is an attractive site, and it's on the 22nd of December in 1620 that they come on shore. They've actually survived the uh, journey pretty amazingly intact. There was really only one fatality uh, along the way out of 100, 102 uh, passengers, but uh, it's the those months that follow that are just devastating, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of this, we think, is just because the harbor is very shallow at Plymouth, and they couldn't dock near land. So they're right. actually dropping their anchor maybe a half out, excuse me, half mile from shore. Their longboat has been damaged badly on the voyage, so they don't have any way to get ashore other than to wade through the water. Okay. So they're wading through waist-high water a half a mile uh, to and, and from uh, over the span of months while they're working on developing a settlement. Yeah. Uh, and so they start to die of, of exposure and pneumonia. And before all is said and done, uh, 52 of the 102 passengers will die hmm. in that first winter. So, Almost so every, yeah. every family, every family is, is affected. Right. There are um, 18 married couples on board, and uh, only three of those couples survive intact. Mm-hmm. So an enormous death. Uh, they do um, half make it through. Uh, they have a decent uh, harvest. Uh, and so what we remember is that first uh, Thanksgiving is their celebration of that harvest after this incredibly uh, costly, arduous, painful uh, winter uh, that they had endured. Yeah, so so, uh, Thanksgiving now is November, but they came in November. How soon was the original first Thanksgiving? So what we remember then uh, is uh, a year after that. So, you know, they're going to arrive in November, but they, they first actually touch ground at present-day Cape Cod, and they're, yeah. they're spending at least six weeks looking for a, a place to settle. So they settled just before Christmas in 1620. Okay. Then we talk about that really hard winter, the uh, agricultural season to follow. And so hard time to we, come. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we don't know exactly when it happened, but it would have been sometime in the fall of 1621. Okay. So in the fall, so it wasn't too far from, from November, the present day, day that celebrated. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, you know, there's, there's, there's no historical reason to connect uh, the celebration of our holiday today to, to late November. That's actually something that begins around the time of the American Civil War. Right. Um, but, you know, the records that survive from the pilgrims, just they don't tell us uh, when it was. 
Right, right, right. They weren't that concerned with the actual date. They didn't know we're going to be celebrating it, you know, literally 400 years later. Still no talking about the story. They're just trying to survive. All right, so what's their relationship with the Native Americans at, at this time? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's a little bit hard to pin down. Uh, one of the things that we'd say right off the bat uh, is that they're arriving at a time that the Native American population has been undergoing some dramatic kinds of changes. Mm-hmm. Okay. There had been European visitors uh, for several years before this, and we believe that they introduced some diseases that have devastating effect on the various tribes. Right. So the Native American population had probably been reduced pretty significantly. Okay. And the people who were most near to Plymouth was a group called the Wampanoag. Uh, and it's pretty clear that they had been, you know, really badly affected by uh, disease. And Plymouth itself uh, was actually on the side of a Native American village uh, of Indians called the Patuxet. And they'd been completely wiped out. Uh, so that's the first thing. So it comes at a time when uh, things are dramatically changing for the Native Americans. Their relationship with some of the Indian uh, tribes is very adversarial. Mm-hmm. Their relationship with their nearest neighbors, the Wampanoag, becomes pretty uh, strong over, over time. Um, okay. uh, s- sometimes I, I say we can exaggerate just how uh, comfortable that relationship was. I suspect it was always just a little bit tense. Uh, but it's clear that they found a way to, to, to get along, to help one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as our popular memory reminds us, the Wampanoag are present at that celebration uh, in 1621, even bringing some of the um, uh, menu uh, when they show up with five deer, uh, okay. which I'm sure would have been welcome. Well, well that's, that's, let, let's ask that big question here. So we have a very traditional Thanksgiving menu now of, you know, turkey and, and gravy and, and uh, all the different things. Now, what were they eating at that first Thanksgiving? Yeah, this is the question I always sort of hate to get because uh, the, <laughs> an, the answer tends to uh, disappoint us just a little bit. Almost right, nothing right. that we consider sort of traditional yeah. uh, Thanksgiving fare would have been uh, something that they would have expected to eat. Uh, and it really starts with turkey. Uh, the the governor of the colony, a man named William Bradford, he talks about lots of turkeys, wild turkeys in the area, mm-hmm. uh, but they also describe them as incredibly fast birds, really right, fast. Right. right. Uh, and the kinds of weapons that the the pilgrims had at the time, uh, the right the guns in particular they had were very heavy. Yeah. They were as tall as the pilgrims were. Yeah. They would have been fired with a tripod. So it's, right. it's not, so, so basically, uh, they weren't gunning down these fast-moving right. trees. Uh, what Bradford says is that uh, they had all kinds of waterfowl. So if you mm-hmm. go to Plymouth today, there are all these little ponds and rivers that flow into the, into the bay. Yeah. And so we can imagine just these enormous flocks of geese uh, and pigeons uh, and ducks uh, yeah. that are descending uh, on the area. And so they're probably firing from a blind in uh, in shooting all kinds of waterfowl. Uh, then beyond that, uh, they would have had Indian corn. Uh, mm-hmm. The pilgrims themselves were fond of what they called salad herbs, okay. uh, which was various vegetables that they would grow in their gardens, like turnips and cabbage and parsnips. Um, they actually enjoyed eel. One of the things that William Bradford uh, really? describes is how the Indian, who we remember as Squanto, uh, taught the pilgrims how to... Uh, get eels out of the creek and river beds okay. and he actually dug them out of the mud with his feet uh and so uh, <laughs> is that a, uh so they is that probably early version of noodling eel. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not what we it's not what we would expect uh, to have today. But so lots of uh, ducks uh, and geese, uh, some lots of vegetables. No pumpkin pie. Yeah, uh, they, they didn't have ovens uh, as right, of sixteen twenty one. They probably wouldn't have had cranberry sauce because they didn't have sugar. Uh, mm-hmm. And eating just straight cranberries uh, probably wasn't super appetizing. <laughs> so um, sweet potatoes was not indigenous uh, to that area. So, okay. uh, you know, most of those things we think of just weren't on the menu. Yeah. So, so it's a celebration of survival now at this point, because you've been there for essentially a year or close to it uh, since they've landed. Uh, their relationship with the natives seems to be back and forth. How do they communicate with the natives? Who is this Squanto character? I remember yeah. the name from grade school, like a lot of us, but, but refresh that, our memories. Yeah, that, that's right. So, you know, they, they do settle then in December, and for several months, they don't communicate. They, they know, they, they see glimpses of Native Americans, you know, from a distance. Uh, but they're, they're not communicating. And then it appears probably around March, uh, just totally to their amazement, uh, this Native American man walks into their uh, village and he says, welcome. Uh, and it's actually uh, another um, a member of the Wampanoag who had some uh, familiarity with English. But he introduces the pilgrims to this man. His real name was Tisquantum. It's, it's shortened to Squanto. Uh, and uh, Squanto had been a member of this Patuxet tribe okay. that had lived on the side of Plymouth originally. He actually, it's, a, it's an amazing story, he actually had been kidnapped by English sailors probably five to ten years earlier. He had been taken to Spain. Uh, he'd actually been liberated in Spain by Catholic priests. He's made mm-hmm. his way to England mm-hmm. uh, where he learns English very well. And he returns hoping to reunite with his tribe uh, um, when he has the opportunity to to go with the English um, ship uh, and finds out that none of his his tribe is alive anymore. Yeah. Uh, But so he hooks up with the Wampanoag and uh, what the pilgrims then find is this uh, man who'd lived several years in England who had very proficient English and he serves as a kind of uh, sort of constant translator uh, between the two groups. So how did, how did, so, so if you're on the Mayflower, if you're a pilgrim, uh, as I understand it, and you can speak into this too, they're, they're fleeing for religious freedom, uh, trying to find religious freedom. It's got to look like the sovereignty of God that you land and find the lone Native American that happens to speak English that helps to, you know, create a unity there and uh, working together uh, between the tribes. How did they look at it? Is, is that their background, I guess, first of all, and how did they look at it? Yeah. So, well, so you, you've mentioned a couple of things. We, so let's take them in turn. Okay. Uh, the, the first really is why were they coming? Uh, right. And that's actually a question that, to, to be very honest, I think is often misunderstood. Okay. The, the pilgrims absolutely uh, had left England for Holland uh, because they were uh, under conviction that the Church of England, which was the established church at the time, uh, was engaging in practices that were not scriptural, okay. uh, and ultimately they concluded they actually could not in good conscience be part of those congregations. Okay. But to separate, to use that term, to separate from that established church was against the law in England, uh, and so they ultimately are forced to, uh, to leave uh, the country. When they go to Holland, though, they find a country that is, for its day, uh, quite, uh, quite diverse and quite religiously tolerant. Uh, and so the pilgrim writers who described their time there actually say their church was, in some respects, flourishing. 
that they experienced a great deal of religious liberty to organize their worship as they thought the Bible uh, required of them. What they don't have in Holland, well, there are several things they don't have in Holland. They don't have much economic opportunity. They're they're working primarily as uh, weavers in the textile industry there. Uh, They're probably working every member of the family six days a week from dawn to, Mm. to dusk. Yeah. Uh, and William Bradford just says, you know, it's it's making them old before their time. Uh, yeah. It's just an arduous existence. They also aren't super happy with Dutch culture. Uh, their Dutch neighbors are telling them uh, that they're too strict in the way that they raise their children. Yeah. Their Dutch neighbors don't uh, recognize and observe the Sabbath the way the pilgrims uh, think is appropriate. And so they're worried. They're worried about the influence of the culture on on their families. Mm-hmm. They're worried about their economic future. Uh, they're seeing some members of their congregation actually return to England because they're so discouraged by um, what's uh, the situation there. So that's what leads actually to their decision to migrate. And one of the things that I so appreciate that we can actually lose sight of, maybe it's just so obvious, but I think we often don't uh, acknowledge it, is that they want to keep their church together. You know, t- t- today, if, if someone um, you know, loses a job in our congregation, you, you'll look for a job somewhere else. Uh, right. And if it means right. leaving your church to, to, to join a different one, you, you do right. that. Right. They don't want to see that happen. They don't want their congregation to uh, gradually sort of fall apart. Uh, and so they're looking for a solution uh, that the entire church would be involved in, that they will, as a body, relocate, yeah. uh, hopefully to a place where these challenges aren't, aren't so severe. Yeah. But, but to get to your other question, how do they see, uh, you know, what uh, right. they encounter? First thing that we would say about the pilgrims is they absolutely believe everything uh, is an expression of God's sovereignty. Okay. God right. is okay. actively involved in the most minute details of their lives. And so when they encounter this um, man, Squanto, who to their amazement knows English, uh, William Bradford uh, immediately will write, this is a gift of God for our good. Yeah. Uh, and so he has, you know, no doubt uh, that this is, you know, a problem. And I suppose it's hard to argue against that, right? I mean, if you, if you land there and you find a guy speaking English, what's the chances of that? You know, that's, that's gotta be uh, astronomically low. Yeah. What, what was their uh, religious background? Are they more Puritan? Uh, what was there? So, so the, the pilgrims are uh, a kind of subset of Puritans. So when we okay. talk about Puritans, we're just uh, referring to any uh, English Protestants who believed that the Church of England had made too many compromises. Now, the Church of England had broken with the Catholic Church in the 1530s, but a lot of English Protestants believed that there was still a lot of inf- Catholic influence. The, okay. the hierarchy of church officials, the priests, bishop, cardinal, uh, uh, not Pope, but a, yeah, a Pope-like yeah. figure, um, they, they said, this is not scriptural. Uh, they were concerned about the, the use of the Book of Common Prayer, which basically prescribes set liturgy for every uh, worship mm-hmm. time. They said, that's not really uh, uh, biblical. So, so the Puritans all wanted to, quote, purify the Church of England of these right. uh, remnants. The pilgrims, probably the best way to think of them is that they're really more radical, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but they're more radical Puritans. They they have come to the conclusion that purifying the Church of England from within the church is not likely going to happen. And so they are literally withdrawing or separating themselves from the established um, church. 
Yeah. Well, it almost seemed like, like by today's standards, if a whole church suddenly moved to another country, we would say that's cult-like, right? There's, there's almost this following that says we're going to be our own way and everybody's going to follow us, follow us in that. Yeah. Uh, and, and their rules, wasn't it uh, Bradford who also said, if you don't work, you don't eat? Is, is that right? <laughs> or am I, am I wrong about that? Well, uh, yes. Uh, there's a particular story probably that you might be thinking of, which I think is, is really uh, humorous. Um, not long after what we remember as the first Thanksgiving in um, the fall of 1621, there's a ship that arrives uh, to uh, provide more settlers for the colony. But a number of these have been recruited by some of the merchants who are financing the venture. They're not part of the congregation. Uh, originally from Holland. And so these are all single men, and they, uh, if they, they may not have been Christian at all. If they were Christian, they probably had very different standards uh, of behavior. Uh, and on Christmas Day, when the pilgrims were all out working, because actually the, the pilgrims did not celebrate Christmas, I, I can explain that if you wish, but they did not celebrate Christmas, they go out to work, but all these new uh, men say, you know, our conscience says we ought not to be working on Christmas. We need to, you know, stay uh, at home. So he says, okay. Uh, and so they go out to work in the morning. They come home at lunchtime, and all these new uh, male settlers are out in the streets playing a game. Uh, and uh, Bradford says, okay, if your conscience says you can't work uh, on this uh, day, I'm going to allow that. But my conscience says it's not good for me to be working while you're playing. Uh, and so you need to just sit in your houses if you're not going to work with us. I think that's a, a fun, a fun story. That, that is, that is kind of funny. Were they six days a week work at that period? Yes. And then a Sabbath, which. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very, very funny. Well, just what's the quick version? Cause, Cause now you wet our appetite and our interest. What's the quick version for why they didn't celebrate for, Christmas? For Christmas. Yeah. So they're, the, the pilgrims are really strict uh, in uh, the way that they think about holy days. They basically say, if the, if the Bible has not commanded us mm. to observe a holy, holy day, a holiday, then we're, we don't have the freedom to create one. Right. And so they would just say, you know, show me in the Bible where it says what day was Jesus' birthday and show me in the Bible where we're <laughs> commanded to celebrate it and we'll do that. Right. Uh, but they didn't see that. So they actually thought they associated it with uh, Catholicism more than, than anything else. Okay. What's, so another thing reminds me from grade school, my mind's going back to the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact, right? Wasn't that the governmental kind of structure as they got here for themselves or how to government themselves, gov, you know, take care of themselves? Um, explain that real quick for us. Yeah. So it's one of those uh, sort of significant moments that we tend to recall. Right. Uh, in the first one, really. So they arrive in, as I've said, uh, off the coast of New England in November of 1620. They had procured permission to land uh, in an area that was being settled by a company that had been chartered by the British Crown. And so they were going to settle under the umbrella of the authority of this uh, royally chartered company. Uh, but they actually end up, because of some storms that they encounter along the way, they end up at least 200 miles farther north in the northernmost stretch of land under the charter of this company. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you want to think of it this way, they believed that they would were, were be settling in an area where there was really sort of no legal government in place. Uh, and so they do, before they decide to um, uh, choose any place to settle, they call all of the male adults uh, into uh, one of the, I think it's the captain's uh, cabin, 
uh, and they sign uh, a kind of document. It's, it's fairly brief. It's just one paragraph, really. And it basically says that they're going to uh, form themselves into what they would have called a body politic and that they were going to submit to one another and to whatever rules and uh, leaders they would um, uh, uh, identify. They did see that, I think it's important to note, as a kind of temporary thing. They, they, they weren't sort of declaring their independence from the king. They did believe that they were in a situation where something like this was essential uh, mm -hmm. for at least the immediate future. Yeah. All right. So if we were to go to most homes in the United States of America today, there's traditional things that go on. We've already talked about food. Uh, that's going to be followed by football of some sort, whether in the backyard or watching the lions get beat or, <laughs> or whatever it is there on television and, you know, and vegging out, you know, everybody's falling asleep after all that, uh, you know, all the turkey and such. Right, so what if we were there on the first Thanksgiving, what's going on around us? What games are they playing? What are they talking about? What's going on? Yeah, so if, if we were there, um, a few observations. First thing I would say is that it wouldn't, first of all, it wouldn't look anything like uh, our, <laughs> our gatherings. Yeah. It's very doubtful. You may have seen pictures, uh, artists' renderings that were done, say, in the 19th century. We often envision the pilgrims uh, around this very long table. Uh, yeah. and, um, they're it always looks like a, a church potluck. It does. It looks a lot like, a, you know, in the fellowship hall, as we would have called it. Um, but, but they have almost no furniture at the time. It's almost certain uh, that they would have been seated on the ground. Uh, they're not eating with utensils very much. Uh, they would have had knives. They do not have forks in the early 17th century. Forks had been really? invented. Yes, but they were not widely in use. And they were really associated with the ultra-wealthy. Uh, it, it was a sign of pretension if you used a fork. Uh, and so uh, most common folks would have had spoons for soup and everything else is knife or hands. Mm. So first of all, I imagine the pilgrims sitting on the ground outdoors, eating with their hands. Uh, it's, it's more like a 4th of July kind of feel than yeah, what yeah, we yeah. think of as Thanksgiving. Uh, they are probably playing games. The one thing that William Bradford, who writes most about this, says uh, is that... Um, they were uh, engaging in kind of military exercises. So there may have been some, some drill, there may have been some uh, shooting contest, uh, perhaps. Um, we just sort of have to speculate. Uh, but but that, that's the, the feel of it, um, uh, at least. And so imagine sitting on the ground, eating with your hands, having eel and turnips, and uh, you're being an authentic uh, Thanksgiving celebrator. Are you, you can bust our bubble. So I'm going to throw this out. I, I've heard this said, you're the historian, that the, the phrase turkey shoot comes from those early Thanksgivings and those kind of things where you would tie a turkey to a tree. The guys who might have already had a little bit too much to drink or what have you with guns that weren't terribly accurate shooting at the turkey to see who could sh shoot the turkey first. Is that yeah, true? So that's great. I, you know, I'm going to have to plead my ignorance. I, I can't, um, I can't uh, provide a positive answer to that. Yeah. All right. If you were going to just mess us up and mess up our, you know, 21st century Thanksgiving minds, what is, is there anything else that you haven't said that you would say, wow, this really is nothing like it is today? Well, uh, so here's something, I, I don't know if this is exactly uh, fitting your category, but something I'd really like to share. Um, and this does, it can burst our bubbles or, or challenge us. Yeah. The pilgrims would not have called that celebration a Thanksgiving. And I do want to just 
share really quickly what, what they would have meant by that. Yeah. They believed uh, that God had designated in his uh, scripture one clear uh, holiday, holy day, uh, that was specified uh, in, in specific time frames, and that was the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, and so that's, that's God's holy day. It's okay. commanded, and they were strict observers of the Sabbath. Then they said that the scripture authorized what they would have called occasional holy days, and they looked primarily to the Old Testament and said that there were times when the ancient, uh, the children of Israel would celebrate days, what they called or observe days of humiliation and fasting mm -hmm. or thanksgiving. And so when uh, circumstances occurred where they feared that they were under the judgment of God or dealing with some sort of serious adversity, they would set aside an entire day for prayer, for fasting. They would gather together uh, corporately and they would pray for God's deliverance. Mm -hmm. Uh, similarly, if they saw that there was some, you know, just uh, sort of out of the usual provision of God's mercy that delivered them from a trial, uh, then they would set aside a day uh, and it would be a very solemn day. It would involve lots of prayer and corporate worship, a day of Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, and so uh, they, they certainly were celebrating God's goodness uh, in that fall celebration. But they didn't call it a day of Thanksgiving. The, the first day of Thanksgiving, according to the history of Plymouth Plantation, uh, occurred in 1623. And it's a wonderful story. It's in the summer. Uh, they already know that their food supplies are short, so they're banking everything on another good harvest in the fall. Yeah. Uh, and then in late spring, a drought sets in. And for two months, according to William Bradford, they don't have any rain. And yeah. their corn is just dying on the, uh, on the stalk. They're looking starvation full in the face. And so they call for a day of humiliation and fasting. Yeah. And according to another pilgrim writer, they spend the entire day in prayer in their meeting house. And they say that a day that began with a cloudless sky ends with uh, overcast. Mm -hmm. In the following morning, a gentle rain begins to fall that lasts for 14 days. Wow. And the crops that were dying are rejuvenated just almost literally before their eyes. Yeah. And so this writer says, you know, if we sought uh, in prayer and humiliation, God's deliverance publicly, we weren't going to retire privately to our prayer closets and thank him for his deliverance. We're right. going to gather together yeah. and observe a day of Thanksgiving. So what they would have thought was their first Thanksgiving was later in the summer of 1623 where they're thanking God for that rain that delivered them from the drought and wow. probably saved the colony. Wow, what a, what a great story. So, that, so that's the real Thanksgiving right there. Yeah, would I they, mean, that's what I would say. And of course, I think it's great. I love the Thanksgiving you know, traditions that we have. Yeah. But I've often thought, I didn't study this when my children were small, yeah. but I've often thought, if I knew about this, I would love as, as a father to be looking for opportunities to say today we're gonna we're gonna yeah. either get together and pray for God's uh, mercy to take us through some trial. But yeah. when I saw God's kindness, I would love to tell my kids, "No school today." So we homeschooled. <laughs> I'd love to say, right, right. "No school today." Today's a day of celebration. It's yeah. not something that's on the calendar, but it's our open acknowledgement of God's kindness and our joyful response to it. That, that, that's so good. That's so good. So the 1621 Thanksgiving, would they have also have had some sort of church services or uh, prayer gatherings? No, that's, or one of the, that's one of the reasons why we say they would not have considered it 
a Thanksgiving. It was it was just okay. it was a party. Okay, and, so they, they didn't consider it a good time. Gotcha. You know? gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, that might answer the 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 next question that I had, and this is one that I feel like I feel like we struggle with this in the modern American world of is it Thanksgiving for something or to someone, right? Is it Thanksgiving for the blessings or is it Thanksgiving to the blesser? And I yeah. think in America, as we become a little bit more secular in our way of thinking, it quickly becomes, oh, I'm thankful for this thing. I'm thankful for my car. I'm thankful sure. for my wife. Uh, it seems to me, and I'd love your take on this, that we lose something with that when we're not going who we're thankful to. We're thankful to God for these things. And sure. so it's a both and, not an either or. What's, what's your thought on that? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in terms of what they understood as, as genuine Thanksgiving Holy Day, I think they would uh, have said, um, you can't separate the two, you, yeah. you know, that, that, that you, you designate a day for Thanksgiving because you have seen God's miraculous provision in some way. So yeah. there's something specific that you are thankful for, and you have no doubt in your mind whatsoever to whom you are thankful for that. Mm-hmm. So I think one sort of fits hand in hand with the, with the other. Um, they certainly would not have wanted to separate the giver from the gift that just right. wouldn't, I think it would have made sense to them. Right. Yeah. The way we do today. All right. Then my, my last question. So, you know, you have 52 that survive in 1621, if I got that number right. And uh, of those 50, 52, what, what happens to them? Where, you know, we, we all know Thanksgiving stories and then most of our, our history classes just kind of jump to something else. So, so what that's happens right. to these yeah. people? Where do they? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I joke and say that we lose interest with them after the turkey is right. carved, you know, it's, right. uh, so we, our story does sort of end with that uh, uh, harvest celebration. So uh, the, the colony grows slowly. Uh, even a half century in, it still has a population maybe of only 300 or so. Uh, and um, eventually it is absorbed into what today we know as the state of Massachusetts. Right. Uh, and so it ceases to have that sort of independent uh, existence. Yeah. So the, the time that the pilgrims are sort of on the stage is, is fairly short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if somebody wants to get your book, The First Thanksgiving, The Real Story, uh, what, the, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history, what's the best way to do that? Easiest thing is just go through Amazon. You'll find it very, uh, very easily there. And yeah. uh, I just would say it makes wonderful gifts. So if you, you know, want to give yeah. it to a bunch of people, yeah, just feel free. Listen, I, I know you are absolutely enjoying this conversation with Dr. McKenzie, and I highly recommend the book. Go on Amazon right now. Pause the podcast, whatever. Go on your Amazon app. Go buy the book right now. But you also have a blog that you consistently write on with different uh, history. Well, and I, I have a blog uh, called Faith in American History, and uh, I, I think of it right now. I'm taking a little bit of a sabbatical from it. But anyone who is interested in sort of uh, – thinking Christianly about American history and faith-informed commentary on different uh, episodes of American history. I think it's a good resource. There are about 300 essays uh, on the blog, all that all are designed to stand alone. So you, you yeah. sort of go to the uh, index and pick out a topic that interests you and uh, read, uh, I hope, edifying essays. For any, for any uh, homeschooling parents, I know uh, your books are a little bit more academic. They're InterVarsity Press for the most part, which are going to be kind of academic books. Uh, maybe a high school senior or somebody might be able to lean into that. But what about your blogs? Are they something that uh, parents could 
could use as teaching aids with an yeah, that's I wish they were, and that would be a wonderful thing. They're, they're really meant for m more uh, mature readers. I, I mean, again, as you said, maybe a high school student, but um, it, it, it's probably more for the parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, Either I, I'll just say really, really fast, uh, I think an introduction just to what it means to think as a Christian about history is a different book that I've written called A, a Little Book for New Historians. Okay. And it's also through IVP, and you can get that on Amazon. And uh, it's very short. It's about 70 pages long. It's meant to be very accessible. And I, I would hope that it would be a resource for Christian educators. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, and, and it's always the, the first priority of the parent is to teach, not to hand it off to other teachers. So I encourage parents to get the book and read it. And, uh, you know, then you chew it up and, and give it down to the kids at their level, you know, and teach them that way. So uh, listen, uh, it has been, it's been such a privilege talking to you. Uh, I hope everybody has enjoyed this as much as I have. Make sure you get the books. We will put his book, his blog, actually all of his books. We'll put them in the show notes. And uh, so you can link to you can You can find the links to them there and uh, look forward to having you back on the show at another time. It was absolutely my pleasure and happy Thanksgiving to you and all your congregation and listeners. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.